Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, welcome to Bridging Philly. The city of Philadelphia is working with the American Cancer Society to remind everyone to get screened for cancer, whether it's breast, cervical, or prostate. We'll talk with some doctors working with ACS about the importance of early detection. Black and African-American individuals and Hispanic individuals um, are the two groups that have seen the greatest drops in cancer screening. And so we hope to reach those two groups. Sharade Howard has our Newsmaker of the Week, whose group led the charge in creating the traveling exhibit that became a national effort to honor Harriet Tubman. A troublemaker, a lawbreaker. However, she was doing what was morally right for her community. Sabrina Boyd-Serka is in for Internet Lee and has our Philly Rising Changemaker this week, who's tackling food insecurity throughout the city of Philadelphia and Camden. So me, I try not to judge people on how they look. I just try to judge people on whether they want something to eat or not. That's a half hour you don't want to miss. And it's all coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but staying on top of your health when it comes to getting screened for various cancers is the message from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Carmen Guerrera is a professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania's School of Medicine. I caught up with her this week at the American Cancer Society's event in Philadelphia, where she shed light on why people should get screened and stay on top of their health. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Guerrera. The very basic message when it comes to uh, cancer screenings is that early detection uh, is key. Now, for breast cancer, what are some of the guidelines when it comes to screening? For breast cancer, the American Cancer Society recommends that women at the age of 40 consider getting a mammogram and should speak with their doctors about that. At age 45, all the way up to 55, women should get an annual mammogram. That means every single year. Once uh, the age of 56 begins, we can drop down to every other year until the woman and her doctor decide that the mammography um, does no longer provides benefits to that woman. So there is no stopping age. Um, we want women for as long as they are healthy uh, to get screened. Uh, we don't want to prematurely stop screening because we know that breast cancer, like most cancers, actually increases the risk with age. So the older women are, the higher the risk. But that greatest risk is 45 to 55. That's when we diagnose the bulk of breast cancers. And so that's why we want women to get a screening exam annually during that decade of their lives. Okay, those are good points. And of course, the fact that uh, the increase uh, in risk goes up uh, as women age. And that, of course, all has to do with all the changes that we all go through hormonally, of course. Hormonally, but also our uh, ability to repair those DNA mutations, those mistakes that happen, actually declines with age. So we can no longer repair damage done by, for example, any toxin that we get exposed to. Um, and so because of that, all of us are at greater risk for cancer the older we are. Okay. Let's talk about this, the disparities that exist when it comes to screenings. What are some of those? Uh, there are disparities, and the greatest disparities, I would say, are among individuals who don't have insurance. So in, uh, in those groups, we see 40, 
to 50% decreases in cancer screening rates compared to those individuals that do have access, that do have insurance. Um, The mammography rate among uninsured women is a shockingly 30%. So that is just unacceptable that uh, those groups, those very vulnerable groups without insurance, have such a low rate of screening. But they don't have to have uh, the low rates of screening because there are programs at the federal government, at the state level and local level that provide free mammography to women who are uninsured and underinsured. And there are handfuls of programs like that. They're called the Breast and Cervical Cancer Early Detection Programs. They are national programs, so you go to any major city, and usually there are handfuls of programs like that. We have one at the University of Pennsylvania. So a woman does not need to have insurance in order to access a free mammogram, and I hope um, any woman who's out there who's uninsured knows that and can contact us. Now that's interesting because I would assume that there are people who don't have insurance that just figure, well, I just can't get screened, and they're not even aware of these programs. Is there a problem with getting the message out, or is there some kind of a barrier there? Absolutely. You are so right. I think you just hit it uh, the nail on the head. They don't even know. And so, uh, yes, there is a problem of information flowing to those women. And uh, sadly, many of them will say, I don't, uh, I can't afford a mammogram, so I'm not going to get one. Um, this is a federal law. It went into effect in the 1990s that we had to provide access to mammography and cervical cancer screening uh, to uninsured women. It's a federal law. So um, why we don't disseminate this information is unclear to me, but uh, I hope we can do that. You and I can do that today is just spread this important information so that women have uh, the ability to access a life-saving cancer screening test. What would you say are the most vulnerable groups that need to be reached when it comes to getting this get screened message? The most vulnerable groups, we talked about one, which was the uninsured groups. But uh, we have now information that shows that individuals who are of some racial and ethnic minority groups are also at high risk for not being screened. And so they re- we really need the message to go to those populations. Who are those populations? Um, they are, depends on the cancer, um, but they are generally black and African-American individuals and Hispanic individuals um, are the two groups that have seen the greatest drops in cancer screening. And so we hope to reach those two groups in particular. You know, I'm always asking the question, you know, when it comes to that, I know that the screening rates are lower in communities of color. And I guess my question would be, why? Communities of color have a, um, a variety of reasons that all have to do with what we call, in one umbrella term, the social determinants of health. So uh, what are the social determinants of health? Well, they're defined as the conditions where people are born into, live, work, play, worship, um, that affect health care. And these are things such as education, such as do you have a job, such as do you have insurance, do you have a car to access ability to transportation to a life-saving cancer screening test. And so communities of color have uh, a lot more barriers rooted in those social determinants of health, which are the result of structural, greater structural inequities in our society um, that developed over uh, many, many years uh, that had to do with policies that disproportionately disadvantage some communities, some populations over others, disadvantage people of color um, and not the white population. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Now, what role did COVID play when it came to uh, screenings or the lack of screenings when that came into play at March something, March 12th, 2020, everything changed. Um, how did COVID affect screenings? COVID led to the most uh, greatest reductions in cancer screenings in all of cancer screenings history. 90% reduction in some tests like mammography, like colonoscopy. And the reason why was that Well, A, we were all telling people not to come to these sites because we were all concerned of people getting exposed to COVID 
um, both as they tried to get access to these tests, but also in the hospital, we also didn't want to expose the patients that were there and expose the, the healthcare population that was taking care of those patients. And so everybody was supposed to stay home. Second, the doctors and nurses and all the providers, we had to pull them out of these routine, non-urgent medical procedures and tests like cancer screening and put them in ICUs and emergency rooms to help us take care of those critically ill people that um, we were taking care of initially in the pandemic and still are, but to a much lesser degree. And so it created a workforce issue as well. And then as we slowly got back to controlling the situation, what we said, okay, we're going to open now, but of course everybody has to wear masks and socially distance and, you know, use tons of Purell. And we're going to require everybody to have a negative COVID test before we do a colonoscopy. Well, people don't want to have a colonoscopy to begin with. And now you have to add a COVID test that many people weren't even able to access early in the pandemic. So there was an example of a a well-intentioned uh, policy that ended up, again, disproportionately hurting people of color. Have people been uh, slowly coming back, uh, getting back on track with their preventative screenings now that uh, the fear of COVID, so to speak, has kind of reduced? Yes, thank goodness people are coming back, but we are not fully back. So there are still some people that are not uh, up to date with their cancer screenings and are very delayed in their cancer screenings. And that's going to potentially hurt us as a society because we're not going to be able to identify those cancers that are out there that people don't know about in an early stage. And you know, when it comes to cancer, that is the most important thing that we identify cancer early. The second reason it's not fully back is a workforce issue. So we actually did lose a large proportion of our workforce um, because of a lot of reasons. One, there were doctors who were close to retirement, nurses that were close to retirement who at the start of COVID just said, um, this is the right time to retire. I can't, I can't do this. Second, um, people who stuck through, those healthcare workforce uh, that stuck through are now really feeling the burnout. And many people are just willfully leaving um, this very high burdensome, stressful position. And the reason it's even more stressful is because, remember, we already lost part of the workforce. So the same work is being done, but on the shoulders of the remaining people in the workforce. And that's really created an emergency burnout situation that we're trying to address. So, so there's not enough personnel to get those screenings that we need done as well. So I would say those are um, definitely improving, but we still have major challenges ahead. Okay, understand. Now, I can speak from experience with this question. And, uh, you know, I often say um, ignorance is not bliss when it comes to your health. People wait. I know I waited. I didn't want to hear. I didn't want to know. I wanted to know, but I didn't want to know. Um, Let's talk about that for a minute. Ignorance is not bliss when it comes to your health. And the fact that people are probably just scared, in some cases, to get bad news. Absolutely. And I um, just want to validate that fear because it's universal. I think at some level, we all feel that when we go to the doctor or we go for a test such as a cancer screening test. But the fear, uh, sadly, as in, and in your example, um, it, it's, it's very scary, but it's also it can be paralyzing. And it leads people to inaction. And that's the wrong thing when it comes to cancer screening. We want to diagnose cancers early when we know they are uh, much, much more treatable and curable. Um, And so I certainly empathize because I feel the same fear that people do. But what we have to remember is when it comes to cancer screening, the majority, the vast majority of people will have a negative test. It's only a few people that we identify and have a cancer or precancer. And in those people, if we find it early, then they'll have the best outcomes possible. Um, and And in majority of those instances, a cure with less aggressive therapy. So finding it early is the absolute key. Some people will have a surgery and that'll be the end of the treatment, um, for example, if it's early enough. But um, but if we can try to remember the data here, the data is over 90% of the people will be told you don't have cancer. And what 
what a relief that is to know that you don't have cancer and that you can continue to live your life to the fullest. So, um, so if we can help uh, just change the perspective from this fear, this isolation. And you know what? If you have fear, there we have the most compassionate people in healthcare, and let them know. And they know what it's like to be a patient, many of them, and they take care of patients. And so they know what to say, whether it's, you know, the encouragement, whether it's information, whether it's just holding your hand. These are the people that care deeply and will do that for you. So let us know. Well, as the American Cancer Society is continuing with their message in Philadelphia to get screened, Philly, um, in our final moment here, what's your message to Philadelphia when it comes to getting screened for any cancer? Don't wait. Get screened now. Dr. Guerrera, thank you so much. Thank you as well. Thank you for having me. Dr. Arnold Baskies is past chairman of the National Board of Directors of the American Cancer Society, and he's chair of the Philadelphia Region for the American Cancer Society. Dr. Baskies is a surgeon who has done hundreds of breast surgeries over the years and is here to answer some questions about what happens when surgery is needed after a breast cancer diagnosis. So, Dr. Baskies, by the time a patient gets to you, um, they're pretty much coming to you for treatment or to solve the problem that they have found um, when it comes to breast cancer and breast surgeries. How long have you been doing breast surgeries? Uh, well, I guess we can go all the way back to 1975. Currently, I'm, I'm seeing patients at the Cherry Hill Free Clinic, uh, and um, I've performed thousands of operations and taken care of thousands of patients with breast-related problems over my career. What would you say... Um, is are the common concerns that patients have when it comes to um, breast cancer surgeries? Well, the women nowadays are very tuned into uh, the importance of screening, first of all. And um, the patients that I've seen over the past um, have acknowledged the fact that screening is important and have and oftentimes will come to me with a concern about breast pain. Breast pain is a very common complaint, but usually not associated, by the way, with breast cancer. So if you ask me what their concerns are, usually it's got to do with uh, their self-discovery of a breast problem, and oftentimes it's got to do with what we call mastodynia, which is the medical term for breast pain. So that's how many patients present, actually. Um, and when it's time to actually have some kind of uh, surgery, I know for me it was just very scary to even hear that I had an issue and that I had to do something about it. I just It was just something It took me a while to wrap my head uh, around everything. And so when you're treating patients, especially for cancer, you're not just treating their issue, but you have to kind of develop a relationship with them and sort of a trust with them as well, right? Yeah, the, the, the whole approach to breast problems is, like many things in medicine, has to be holistic. You have to take into consideration who the patient is um, and what their concerns are. And then you can address the the physical problems. Breast surgery in and of itself is not difficult surgery from a, from a, a technical point of view, but it requires a, a, a fairly substantial knowledge of the best way to treat the breast uh, problem that the patient has. If it's a malignant condition and is amenable to a lumpectomy, uh, is it is it so large that you need to get chemotherapy to shrink it down prior to surgery? Uh, are there are there other treatments that need to be used after the operation's been performed? Um, so there's a lot of considerations that need to go into how to plan and how to a- approach the the breast problem that the patient's presenting with. So there's a lot to it. So not all breast cancers require surgery, and when it does require surgery, uh, is it true that sometimes there are multiple surgeries that are involved? Yes, that can be the case. Um, the, the, the interesting part is, is that for most breast cancers, for breast cancers that are relatively small, a woman doesn't necessarily have to have a mastectomy, but what we're seeing more and more in women with small breast cancers who want to have bilateral mastectomies. It's what we call the Angelina Jolie effect. Uh, Angelina Jolie, by the way, did not have breast cancer. She she was a BRCA positive um, uh, situation that prevailed for her. 
and she decided to have that. And that kind of was a, a kind of a subliminal message to women that, that bilateral mastectomies is an alternative for breast cancer. And so the pendulum is swinging more and more towards um, a lot of surgery for a relatively small breast cancer, which is what ma- many women want, and, and, and more and more of that's being done. And part of that is because of the advances in, in plastic surgery that we've seen. Um, at, uh, at Virtua, for instance, we have multiple uh, surgeons who are able to do um, the breast surgery, and we have one surgeon in particular uh, at, at Virtua, Dr. Ao, who's an expert at reconstruction using the patient's own tissues. So um, it, it, it's an exciting time for, for, uh, for, for breast uh, reconstruction. Um, the Philadelphia area, by the way, has a lot of surgeons, uh, plastic surgeons, who are trained in that area, especially at the, at the University of Pennsylvania. Talk about those advancements for a minute, because I think when the people hear, you know, mastectomy and augmentation, they're thinking the worst. They're thinking, you know, how things used to be, say, 30, 40 years ago. Talk about the changes and the advancements and that you can come away pretty much looking how you'd like to look by the time everything is all said and done. Yeah. So the there there are procedures that have been developed over the last decade or two that have allowed well-trained plastic surgeons to use uh, a portion of the abdominal wall fat, essentially, to make a new breast once the breast has been removed. And, the, and as you said, the cosmetic result um, for that operation is excellent. Is it a big operation? Yeah, it is. But at the end of the day, the results um, speak for themselves and, and, and are generally very good cosmetically. What are some of the questions that uh, people should ask before uh, breast surgery is done? Um, Assuming that there's a breast cancer that's been diagnosed, the things that they need to understand are what are my alternatives in terms of treatment? What's the treatment plan? What can I expect after after I have my operation? Um, and at any good medical center, there'll be a multidisciplinary breast cancer case conference where the case is discussed prior to the treatment being um, being. Uh, 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 planned, so um, make sure that you have a good team that that you can rely on, not just the surgeon but also the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist um, and um, uh, the other the other things that come into play are the other para- professionals who are involved in the in the care of that patient. Do I have a navigator? Will there be someone to help me um, with scheduling my procedures or, or my tests? Uh, what tests do I need to have done? Should I have genetic testing performed? Um, the support services that that will be available, you need to go and relu- and figure out what those are going to be. Um, so the as we said at the beginning of this discussion, uh, there has to be whole, a holistic plan that that's put together. It isn't just an operation. It isn't just radiation. It isn't just chemotherapy or hormonal treatment, hormonal therapy. Uh, it's, it's putting that whole thing together so that you have a personalized treatment plan that's put together for you. Uh, and, a, and a good center will provide that. The other thing to remember is, is that if you're going to go to a, a center, make sure that it's an accredited center. There is a separate accreditation process for breast centers. It's called the NAPBC, the National Accreditation Program for Breast Centers, NAPBC. So it's kind of like the good housekeeping seal of approval that that center is doing what's needed to be done in terms of quality improvement, in terms of providing all of the care that's necessary to do a good job for that patient. So when you go to a center, you should always ask, is this an NAPBC accredited center? Uh, we, there's data that shows that NAPBC centers do a better job and provide better care from a number of quality uh, standards that are and accountability standards that are measured, and there's data to show that. So uh, make sure that you're going to an accredited center, and, and, and the, 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 the 
the letters are NAPBC. That stands for National Accreditation Program for Breast Centers. So if you do all those things and you cross the T's and, uh, and uh, dot the I's, um, the ride will be a better one for you. And uh, as, I tell, as I've told patients, once you've been diagnosed, it's kind of like you're climbing up a hill. And the first portion of that climb is going to be um, a little bit difficult. But if you have the right people that are working on your behalf, the right doctors, nurses, other allied professionals, um, you're going to come down the other side of that hill uh, really smoothly. Um, and so um, the, the, the best thing that you can tell patients and what they should realize is that you know, when I graduated medical school and started my training in surgery and surgical oncology in 1975, which sounds like a long time ago because it is a long time ago, uh, the, the survival rate for breast cancer in the United States was 75%. Five-year survival rates were 75%. The five-year survival rates for breast cancer are now well over 90%. So there's a lot to be, have to be thankful for, and a lot of that that is because of women and women's lobbies, 25% of all of the medical research that's funded by the NCI is in just in breast cancer, which is a phenomenal thing, and it's part of what made the difference. The American Cancer Society has been there for every patient with breast cancer um, for the last 100 years. Uh, And so um, all those things add up to the improvements that we're seeing today in all of the aspects of care that are required to take care of a patient with breast cancer. Dr. Baskis, uh, for a woman, finding that lump uh, in the breast and and then having that um, confirmed is just so, so very scary. What percentage of lumps found in breasts are actually cancerous? It's a small percentage, actually. The vast majority of lumps in, in the breast are, are, the vast majority are benign. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean that we ignore the finding of a breast lump. Any breast lump should be evaluated by a competent person. Now, in terms of, you know, and this was my case, uh, a woman finding a breast, uh, a lump in a breast and saying, I'm just going to watch it. Uh, Let me just see how this looks after a while. Yeah, I'll just keep an eye on it. Really kind of just putting things off, not wanting to face what it actually could be. Uh, I'm assuming that the message, of course, here has always been early detection is key and get screened. There's really no value in putting things off and watching things, right? Uh, there's a, there's some truth to that. Yeah. The, the, um, the problem with breast in general is, is that when we talk about early detection, it's, it's really about the fact that we don't find many of these early enough. Um, and early, um, the term early, uh, um, is a, is a relative term that I, I like not to use because the natural history of breast cancers is that, once you've detected a lump in the breast that's malignant, it's actually been there for many, many years. And people don't realize that. You don't go from one cell to a billion cells in a lump in one day or one year. It's multiple years. So by the time you've felt that lump, it's usually that's malignant. The, the truth of the matter is, is it's usually been there for a long time. And what we found because of improvements in biochemistry and molecular biology is, is that what determines how you do is the genetic signature of that breast cancer. And we can actually detect and, and quantify the genetic signature. Now, what do I mean by genetic signature? Not to get too technical, but in the cell, there's a nucleus. And in that nucleus of the cell, there are, there's DNA. And the DNA of that cancer cell or the cancer cells is what determines whether or not how long that cell will live, how long that cell where that cell, how, how often that cell will divide, and where that cell can go if it has the ability to go anywhere else in your body. And so what we found is, is that we can actually determine prognosis and the best treatment options by looking at that genetic uh, signature of that breast cancer, and we can measure that actually in the lab. And it's, it's made an incredible difference in terms of how we treat breast cancers. So that, that's really the, 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 one of the improvements that we've seen since 2002 
when we first became aware of the fact that breast cancers are not created, all breast cancers are not created equal. Some are, many of them will never spread or don't have the ability to spread. And so um, we, can, we can really make a difference in how we treat breast cancers because of the fact that we can determine which ones have a good prognosis and which ones don't. But that isn't a, a random event. The, the way a breast cancer um, uh, acts is really based on its genetic com- composition. And that's, that's, a made a, a, that's a game changer. That became a game changer for us because knowing what that breast cancer has the ability to do f- from a lab test really can dictate how we, what the best treatment is for that particular individual patient. So would you suggest that all women that find out that they do have breast cancer and they're treated uh, get that genetic mapping and testing done for the future generations, of course? It, it, the genetic signature of breast cancers has been done uh, in the hundreds of thousands of patients already, and it is something that every oncologist knows about today. Yeah. Um, now, as far as getting screened, of course, the message with the American Cancer Society is for Philly to get screened. Uh, early detection is key. Um, and then, then, then there, of course, there are women that think that, oh, you know, this is going to hurt. I don't want to go because I heard there's a squeeze and so on and so forth. We really need to just get rid of that thought process and um, because your, your health is your wealth and ignorance is not bliss when it comes to your health, of course. Right. So um, about, well, it must be about seven, eight years ago already, um, I helped develop the screening uh, guidelines that we use from the American Cancer Society when I was on the National Board of Directors and on the Missions Outcome Committee. And um, what, our, what our guidelines tell people is as follows. Um, this is for women of average risk, by the way. If you have a family history, this, a strong family history, uh, this doesn't apply. But for women of average risk for breast cancer, have, start thinking about having a discussion with your health care provider between the ages of 40 and 45, and then begin mammograms at age 45. That's not to say you shouldn't have a mammogram at age 40, but the discussion, you should have a discussion with your health care provider. And the reason we've, we've, we've um, tweaked the guidelines between 40 and 45 is, is that the, the, the chances of getting breast cancer start to increase uh, around 45 to 47 years of age. Um, can a woman get breast cancer at an earlier age? Yes, they can. And unfortunately, those those people can get, there are patients who have, I've treated breast cancer patients at age 18. That's a rare event, however, thank goodness. Um, have I treated patients with breast cancer in their age, in the, between the ages of 30 and 40? Yeah, the answer is yes. But again, that's a relatively rare event. All right, Dr. Baskies, thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, it was a pleasure to, to, uh, to speak to you. And I want to thank KYW for all they do for uh, healthcare in general, and for being a great partner for the American Cancer Society, um, the message that KYW gives is is heard throughout the entire Philadelphia region, and it's an important message. And the American Cancer Society really appreciates all that you do for us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. The traveling exhibit that became a national effort to honor Harriet Tubman gained lots of attention across the country. Shara Day Howard talks about the exhibit that started at City Hall. Our newsmaker this week is a woman who's traveled hundreds of miles through history leading enslaved people to freedom, both before the Civil War and after, with bounties on her head. She was a nurse. She was a Union spy. This week, we honor Harriet Tubman and the artists she inspired, Gloria Davis and Cassandra Stancil Gunkel, both members of the Sankofa Artisans Guild, the local group that issued a call to action, asking fellow artists across the country to share their work as a tribute 
to Tubman. The art collection started at City Hall and now rests in Bucks County until the end of November. Ladies, welcome to Bridging Philly. You say there's no better time than now to recognize the contributions of such a trailblazer who has profound ties to the Philadelphia area. Why? Back at the end of uh, 2021, Maisha Oganza of our group found out that the city was going to be celebrating Harriet Tubman's 200th birthday. And she goes, do you want a quilt exhibit? And that sort of got everybody in the group uh, on board. So that was the ball rolling. That that was the beginning of the ball rolling. Um, and so from then, you know, she we we knew quilters and other makers around Philadelphia. And then some of us within Sankofa reached out and we made this really a national call. So we ended up getting pieces from California, Rhode Island, uh, Jersey, of course, uh, as far south as Florida, so up and down the East Coast. So it, it, it really became a national exhibit to honor Harriet Tubman. So the word got out and everybody wanted to be a part. Yes. Uh, I mean, for a very quick turnaround, because we needed pieces by mid-January, and it was really at the end of the year, in the middle of the holiday season, that we put this call out. And, you know, the fact that we had so many great um, contributors, there were a total of 40 artists who, 30 artists, 40 pieces who contributed to this exhibit. Um, It meant a couple of things. Number one, you know, some people did pieces just for this exhibit, but number two, Harriet Tubman continues to resonate because people were pulling from their collections or from their stashes, things that they'd done years before. Um, Even when I started looking in my own stuff, I found quilts representing every decade going back 30 years that I had done to, to honor Harriet Tubman. And I did something completely new. So, I mean, I think... Um, I am typical. You know, she's she's a motivating and inspiring figure, uh, somebody that has always meant a lot to us, and, and we find ways to honor her with our art. Having said that, Cassandra, within that inspiration, can you describe what your piece is and what was the, I guess, the passion behind it? Well, there are two pieces. One represents the issues I, I was having over this debate over whether Harriet should be depicted on on a, on an American dollar bill, um, so uh, my piece is called "Greater Than Rubies," and it has bits of green fabric that's in the shape of dollars. It has an image of her that's meant to look like the kind of of print that you see of of the so called founding fathers that are on dollars, um, and I have additions to it, um, things from Africa that represent wealth, like a, a, a girl's waist belt, cowrie shells, a woman's beaded necklace. Those are things that across the continent represent wealth. Uh, so my piece is really about, you know, the value, you know, that the ways that we think of her and value her and put dollar labels on her. And the point of it is, how dare we? <laughs> you know, how dare we? Yes. <laughs> So almost the difference between currency and value. Exactly, exactly that. Yeah, and then I had another piece. I'm a book artist, um, so I learned that Harriet Tubman carried photographs of people who could help her uh, along the Underground Railroad. So, you know, this is, you know, my imagination of images that she would have been uh, seeing. Um, And they are images that come from her period of time. Images of Frederick Douglass, for example, um, uh, Harriet Jacobs, who was an African-American woman who escaped from slavery in North Carolina, came north and wrote a book about it. So images of people that would have been in her time, so her contemporaries. So that's my artist book. So you've kind of woven together not only fantasy and reality, but your perspective, your POV of it, your point of view. Oh, oh yeah. As an artist, you get to do that. (laughs) Now, Gloria, tell me about your participation in this and why, again, it was so important for you to be a part. Okay. It was important to me because um, after the George Floyd situation, uh, going back to see what our ancestors dealt with, um, it's still the same. Uh, My particular piece uh, has a vision of Harriet that was in linoleum block. So it's sort of like a ghostly image of her because she's very strong in our minds but it's history. So you see her, from my point of view, 
as a strong woman that goes back to the past, sort of like, not ghostly, but strong. Uh, Ever-present. Ever-present. Thank you very much. On my quilt, there's a picture of a railroad track depicting the Underground Railroad. So it's like symbol of the railroad. And I have a ruler at the bottom of it, which is five feet, because Harriet Tubman was only five feet tall. Very powerful woman. I can't imagine a man six foot two following her instruction, but she had that kind of power. Uh, She brought families across with their children and babies that were crying. And she had she knew what natural herbs to use so that it would they would not cry, that they would not be found in the woods. Uh, on that, I have uh, a tree with leaves on it with a dinkra symbols, which is from Ghana. Uh, and they're, they're meaning such certain things like strength, religion. Harriet Tubman was a very religious person. She felt that God was her guide. And she traveled a lot at nighttime. So on my quilt is a star. And it's the North Star. That's where she followed at nighttime to go where she was going. Uh, The quilt really is in black and white because our society is black and white. uh, But it's not. It's about the money. Uh, It's an economic situation that we're living through. So... Uh, it also shows that in that exhibit, I have a picture of a doll. The background of the doll is money, and it has the 14th and 15th Amendments, which free the slaves. And in uh, several sayings, like uh, Shirley Chisholm saying, you know, she was a woman that was not going to be bound by um, patriotism. In other words, just because it would get something done, and it was not right. She was not going to go along with it. So uh, I have a saying on there from her, both front and back of the uh, the quilt. Do you remember the quotes or the meaning uh, behind the quotes? I'm trying to think. I know one, her main saying was unbossed, unbound. And another saying was that if they don't let you at the table, you bring a folding chair. One of her sayings was that it was more of an issue for her being a woman than being black, you know, that just because she was a woman, they would not hear her. Even some black men would not hear her, you know, no matter what. And I remember thinking when she ran for president that I thought at the time that she should not do that. I have more respect for her now, you know, and... uh, that's So there's so many wonderful parallels between, mm -hmm. you know, modern and then also historically looking back, but also Shirley Chisholm and Harriet Tubman. Mm -hmm. The injustices that we're fighting. They were fighting then and we're still fighting now. Yeah. Both were strong women, but I can't imagine being a Harriet Tubman in the time that she lived, finding favor with a lot of Quakers who helped the movement. You know, uh, we have to give the Quakers their kudos Mm -hmm. for being there and allowing people into their houses and stuff like that. So I guess that's why it's so important also now that the exhibit is no longer at City Hall. It has traveled to the Johnson House, which is on Germantown Avenue. From there, it has gone to Pensbury Manor. And then after that, where does it go? Well, that will be the ending because uh, at Pensbury Manor, it will be on exhibit through mid-November. And our group, you know, sort of made a collective decision, this being the first thing that we've ever curated. um, And we've ushered it from one location to another. Um, We've decided, you know, her 200th year ends this year, so we will finish the exhibit at Pensbury Manor. I actually sought out Pensbury Manor because we actually had a a choice of places uh, for the exhibit to go in Bucks County. I like Pensbury Manor because it's the country home of the founder of Pennsylvania. It's sort of a lightning rod for many cultural groups. William Penn, in his time, was known to have dealt evenly, fair-handedly with the Lenape Indians. And so on the grounds of Pensbury Manor is housed the bones of 
Lenape ancestors who were scattered far in museum collections. So it's it's a place for that they have chosen and revered as as a resting ground. Um, and we know that William Penn had slaves. So before we <laughs> before we unpack the quilts at Pensbury Manor, uh, Maisha Oganza of our group, uh, we had a smudging ceremony. Um, to appeal to our ancestors and clear the way for these objects to come in. Because I don't know if Harry Tubman would have been welcome, you know, <laughs> in her time. Um, we don't know that. So, uh, and we really wanted to get that word out because when the quilts were at the Johnson House, which in Philadelphia, it's a known site on the Underground Railroad, there were visitors there who said, you know, wherever this goes, you have to let us know that we are welcome, we as in people of color. Because not all museums are as appealing <laughs> and and outward reaching, so it has been spudged, uh, and the exhibit is up at Pensbury Manor. Fantastic! And you, then you reached out to the ancestors to make sure not only they knew that they oh, were welcome, yeah, you but you they bet. you wanted them to be there. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it was a very moving ceremony. Um, I don't know if it was Maisha or if it was the place. I mean, I was there and I felt the presence of the ancestors uh, in that moment, in that space. Um, so, yes, you're welcome to come and visit the, the exhibit there. And Pinsbury Manor is right on the Delaware River. And I'm pretty sure, you know, uh, there are several underground railroad routes that go through Bucks County. The Delaware River was certainly one of them. There were overground routes that in Bucks County uh, was connected through the Quaker meeting houses, which were 10 miles apart, literally going all the way across Bucks County. So I'm pretty sure Harriet came through there in one way, shape or form. So uh, she's back home again. Mm -hmm. So she knows her way. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And there are other things, not just quilts in the exhibit. Can you tell us more, Gloria? There's mosaics. Uh, there's a shawl made by one of the artists that uh, depicts the shawl that was given to Harriet Tubman by the Queen. There is Cassandra's book, A Beaded Face of Harriet Tubman uh, in her older years. And the quilts do tell a story, but differently. Mm-hmm. You have some quilters that are very folk type, and you have quilters that are very traditional twilts. They've made an effort to honor Harriet Tubman in a way that you don't find in the traditional quilt show. Mm-hmm. There was one by um, the California artist, by Ramses. It is the length of the wall. It's about eight feet, I think. So appropriate because she was only five foot, but she was so big in <laughs> yes. her power and uh-huh. in her strength, yeah. uh-huh. her presence. Yes, yes. So his quilt was like the cornerstone of the quilt show. Mm-hmm. And every piece is really, uh, one person said they could cry. You know, it touched them that much. Mm-hmm. And uh, one lady, uh, I met another quilter last weekend who didn't know about the call. And she said, oh, I wanted to be in that show, you know. So uh, it was on three floors in City Hall. Wow. It was the first Second and third floors, first, third, and fourth floors. It it was awesome. Mm-hmm. I love hearing that mm-hmm. because there is such an important way in which we interpret things. But why was it so important to have artists interpret this aspect of our history? It was important because each artist drew from their own. And uh, it's not necessarily that you were a black artist or, or a white artist. It was your life and your experience of Harriet. Um, There's a walk twice a year from Maryland that people do. And I had planned to do it this October. I don't know. I don't think they did it, you know. But they're walking the trail that she walked. And they're taking a boat that she took. And they're taking a horse and and buggy ride. So... Uh, sort of simulating what she went through, but modern, because we're not we're not built that way. Right. You know, we don't have that strength. Right. Yeah, uh-huh. and uh, 
the sad part is that we're going through so much of what was still what was really the issue, the core issue then, we're still going through now, whether it be about being a, a woman, whether it be about being of color, mm-hmm. we're going through it all now. So it's yeah. even more poignant that we make that ride, but we have to gather our strength. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe calling back and reaching back mm-hmm. is the way to do it. Uh, in Harriet's time, she came of age and was active at the birth of photography. Civil War photography was really the big introduction of that medium in our culture. So there were a handful of actual images of her, maybe four, maybe five. I know just in the last couple of years, they've discovered uh, one of her from her youthful days, like as a young woman. This exhibit is a chance for artists to reinterpret and create their own versions of Harriet. Uh, so Gloria was talking about the Ramses piece. He's actually a stained glass artist, um, and six feet tall Harriet. Uh, her her face is made out of all kinds of beautiful African fabrics. She's holding this lantern, and of, out of all of the images, the quilt images of Harriet, this brother uh, has depicted Harriet Tubman with long, beautiful fingernails. So he really underscores for me that she was a woman, that she was actually a woman. Um, so it, we have traditional quilts, and by traditional I mean like uh, pieced geometric shapes. But the traditional quilts in this exhibit, they're using African fabrics. They might be using old-fashioned designs like flying geese. But when you see these quilts on the wall, they are vibrant. They almost jump out at you. Um, And then we have, you know, quilters using very contemporary, like... uh, the cricket is uh, something that's very popular among crafters. So we have uh, quilters who have used the cricket to create their own little pieces and patterns and figures to go uh, on their artworks on the wall. So from the traditional piece fabrics to whatever is happening now in your crafts room, you can see that kind of technique illustrated in this exhibit. So everything, every aspect of this particular exhibit is about movement. It's about travel. It's almost about time travel in its own right and how we see things and how we've grown or how... I hadn't thought about that. With that in mind, with a message that needs to be communicated from maybe then to now and what you would say to that next generation, what you would say to that next person walking through the door who's going to look at that exhibit, what would you want them to know? Be willing to make trouble. <laughs> uh, this this exhibit honors a troublemaker, a lawbreaker. Um, she had wanted posters uh, after her. However, she was doing what was morally right for her community. I think that's the message. That's an important message because, you know, there are a lot of people in high positions today who do very wrong things, not always for the right reasons, but they do wrong things. But um, you have to search yourself for your moral core and and go after that in your life. I think that's that's a big message from Harriet. Also, uh, Harriet's message was, if we're going through the woods or whatever, just keep on going. And that she repeated several times, that, you know, keep going. And I see this generation as a quiet generation, but I see them as smart, and I see some of them as very politically smart. Uh, We have Harriet's out there. And keep it moving. Keep it moving, yes. (laughs) Don't stop. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. The Philly Rising Changemaker is sponsored by Penn Medicine Heart and Vascular Center, performing the most advanced heart procedures in the region. I'm Sabrina Boyd-Circa, in for Antoinette Lee. The experience of food insecurity can be hard to wrap your head around if you haven't lived through it. What you have to understand is it doesn't matter who you are or what your situation is now. Out of nowhere, you could lose a job or something could happen that leaves you not knowing where or when you might get your next meal. And there are barriers to getting benefits like SNAP or EBT. That's why this week's Philly Rising Changemaker is working to feed everyone who needs it, no strings attached. Abdella Abdul-Kawi is the director of Muslim Serve. Abdella, thank you so much for joining us on Bridging Philly. Tell us how Muslim Serve got started. Okay, so the president of the organization, his name is Dr. Hamza Sheikh. Him and his wife, 10 years ago, decided they were going to go in front of the public library in a 
they decide to go feed some homeless people there. He was a intern in college, uh, looking to be a doctor, doing his internship at Cooper Hospital in Camden. So they made about 50 meals. They took him to the park and they were amazed at how fast the meals went. So they went to the local masjid, which was United Muslim Masjid, and they explained to them what they did and that they needed help, that they wanted to continue doing it. So the imam, which is the spiritual leader, directed me to help them. And we started doing it the third Saturday of every month until it increased to where we are today. And where are you today? Where, how often do you serve meals? Is it still monthly? Is it more often? Yes, we serve meals every week now. We have held contracts with the city feeding at the Hub of Hope doing over 250 meals a day at the Hub of Hope in Center City. We partner with uh, organizations like Phil Abundance and Care for Friends and Share. We do dry boxes as well because we're trying to meet people where they are because of the pandemic. So a lot of people need dry goods because they don't have the refrigeration necessary to store the food. Awesome. And you serve, it sounds like you serve both Philly and Camden areas? Correct. And there's no no qualifications or anything. Anybody can walk up for any reason, no questions asked, and get a meal from you. No questions asked. Just if you want a meal, just ask for it, and we'll give it to you. We take volunteers from seniors all the way to small children, as long as they can be uh, supervised and act in a mannerly way. Cool. I feel like we hear a lot about churches doing community service. You know, it's a very common place to go and get meals or whatever you would need. But I think a lot of people still don't really know much about the Muslim community. Now, I know that you serve people regardless of their religion. You have volunteers that are not Muslim as well. But for you, how does your faith play into your motivation or the mission or the community that you've built around it? Okay, so uh, as a Muslim, we, we have a tradition where if you go to bed with a full belly, and you're not sure that your neighbor had a full belly, then you aren't the good Muslim that you should be. So for me, it's about knowing that there's a need to feed people out there and try to meet that need. You know, the fact of the matter is that 85% of the people that we feed are not Muslim. Almost 60% of the people that help us aren't Muslim. So it's about just feeding the need. Not if you're a Muslim, if you're Christian, if you're Jewish, hunger doesn't draw any lines. So we don't draw any lines when it comes down to feeding people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I noticed that you put kind of an emphasis on diversity. What does that mean to you? Why is that an important part of the mission? Because, again, poverty or hunger doesn't care if you're rich today and you're poor tomorrow. They don't draw a line. So we don't draw any lines. Some people are, are down on their luck. I had a person that was an electronical engineer and he lost his job. Yeah, he was driving a Mercedes, but he didn't have enough money to food, feed his family. So me, I tried not to judge people on how they look. I just try to judge people on whether they want something to eat or not. I don't need an explanation on why you need something to eat. Is your belly empty? How can I help you fill your belly? Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. I heard that you also had partnerships to serve Afghan refugees. What kind of work were you doing there? So uh, when the Afghan refugees first came, everybody was scrambling to help them out. And Muslim Serve had a contract to feed the Afghani refugees, trying to feed them their traditional foods because there was some type of mix up. And the majority of them were Muslim and they were being fed pork at the airport. You know, and that's against our religious beliefs. And, you know, who knows better how to feed a Muslim than a Muslim? So we understood that they had special diet needs and we wanted to help fulfill that special diet. So that's why we were eager to help out with the Afghan refugees. And we still help with families once they transition into their permanent home. We take them on a shopping spree for groceries and so on and so forth for the first week that they're in their new homes as well. So... There's clearly a lot going on here. You said you're making 250 meals per week? Per day. Per day. Per day. Per day. Per day. Clearly a lot Correct. to be done. Um, if someone wants to volunteer and help out, 
What can they do? Do people cook meals and bring them to you? Do you have a kitchen where you cook? Do you need people to help serve the meals? No, yeah. So we would rather people come to us and help cook with us. And they can get trained on how to cook meals. And then we can certify them to cook meals in their home or somewhere else. But the ideal situation is to go to Muslim Serve. That's Muslims with an S, serve.org and sign up to come out and volunteer with us. And then we can certify someone to make meals under their own supervision after they've worked with us for a considerable amount of time. Got it. Awesome. And so you just gave us the website. Um, where else can people find you online or or just out and about? Like when's the next meal if anybody needs some help and needs to get a hot meal from you? So we're uh, uh, at the Philadelphia Masjid, which is 4700 Wallusen in West Philadelphia every third Saturday. We also have six other mobile sites throughout the city. If you go on our website, you can see when we're feeding and how often we feed in there and how you can help us feed. Amazing. Is there anything that I missed that I didn't ask about that you want to make sure people know? We want to make sure people know that in Philadelphia, there's a need to feed. And we're looking to partner with any organization that wants to feed that need with no strings attached. Because the fact of the matter is, we have people that are haves. And the haves are those people that eat whatever they want to eat, whenever they want to eat. If you can do that, you're a have. We have plenty of people in this city that are have-nots. They don't eat what they want to eat when they want to eat it. The fact of the matter is, they eat out of the garbage can sometimes. Mm-hmm. So... Being a hag, we are automatically responsible for the have-nots. So we want to partner with anybody that's a have in order to help us feed the have-nots. That's simple for us. Amazing. Again, you can find more information, whether you're looking to get a meal or to volunteer, at muslimsserve.org. Abdullah, thank you so much for bringing your story to Bridging Philly. Thank you for allowing me to share my story. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And of course, please subscribe to the podcast. For Internet Lee, Sharaday Howard, Sabrina Boyd Circa, and our podcast producer Tom Rickard, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs>